0: Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford.
1: Hello, Kat. How are you doing today? Nadia, we have a packed episode. we got a lot to <laughs> cover this do. week. We do. Holy moly. Uh, when you mentioned that on Twitter, I put that like Spongebob meme of the fish looking under, over his shoulder like, wait, what? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that I was like, oh, yeah, we'll do a mailbag this week. And it's like, no,
0: we are not doing a mailbag this week because we have some major RPG impressions. I have finally played Final Fantasy VII Remake. Nadia,
1: I have thoughts. Oh, you always have thoughts. I'm sure this will be great. I have so many opinions. (laughs) You are the opinion person.
0: (laughs) And also, I got to see Baldur's Gate Three. And by C, I mean, I sat and watched a three-hour hands-off demo. Wow, that's a long hands-off demo. Like, did you fall asleep? I mean, I tried to stay awake, though it was an open bar, which made it all more difficult. And they had bespoke Baldur's
1: Gate cocktails. Yeah, I always have to. Whenever I'm at an event and they have, like, the, the cocktails that are themed around the event, I always have to try them. I mean, they're there, you know? One of the
0: very few perks of being a journalist is that occasionally there will be food. And then we yes. all set upon that table like a bunch of hyenas, going, "No, no, my food, mine!"
1: <laughs> oh my god, I can eat for the first time in a week. I mean, we can't afford food on our own. <laughs> Pretty much that, and alcohol. I don't buy alcohol on my own, it's but like, when I go wow, to wow, alcohol, what a luxury! Yeah, and sometimes we go to major events by major publishers who don't have an open bar, and I'm like, really, really, publishers. All right, so I'll have my thoughts for that in a few
0: minutes. Plus, also. Well, we were going to hold off on this for a couple weeks, but I mean, I just realized recently that we are coming up on the Japanese release date, the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the release of the PlayStation 2 in Japan, a momentous day in gaming history.
1: Yeah, that's a a huge one, and it really snuck up on me. I, I haven't even been thinking about it.
0: One of the most important consoles ever made, the PlayStation 2. It's a big ones so we're going to be doing that in the second half to coincide with the anniversary and a whole bunch of uh, other coverage as well so it's gonna be exciting but yes that'll be the next episode next in our console rpg quest and unfortunately we had to leapfrog the uh the wonder swan and the neo geo pocket unfortunately but don't worry we'll circle back to those all right nadia so but before we get to that Axe the Out is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to contribute to our mailbag, send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Nadia, we got a ton of great comments after last week's tropes that we love and hate
1: in RPGs. Mm-hmm. People
0: had a lot of opinions.
1: Yeah, people have a lot of opinions about tropes, and uh, I'm looking forward to going through all that. The one that surprised me the most: people were defending sewer levels, Nadia. <laughs> well, if you love sewers so much, why don't you go marry one? <laughs> no, don't. Gross. <laughs> that would be that would be a good way to catch a lot of diseases.
0: Somebody in the comments said, "Come on, cat, Chrono Trigger sewer level is five minutes, God!" And uh, I was just like. Yeah, well, it was bad enough that it kept me from beating
1: Chrono Sugar properly for 10 whole years. I hated that so much. Well, you were saying that basically the whole future scene is just one big sewer level because it's so gray and grim. But, God, that's the whole point. Going from, like, Guardia in, in in like, 1000 AD and it's all happy and green. And then you go to this really wasted, like, blasted wasteland. And you're just like, wow, what happened? And that's your incentive to go find out what happened. It's like, yes, it's... Really horrible, and there's actually quite a bit in the way of dead people. But given how shonen and happy Chrono Trigger is usually, it's such a good motivator to see, like, oh my god, I have to, I have to fix all this.
0: Yeah, I agree, but it goes on too long, and frankly, we didn't need the motorcycle race.
1: Now, the, motorcycle, like, the motorcycle race is a piece of crap. I don't know why that's there except to show off Mode Seven. Could have yes. used that. Could use that space for so much more.
0: Do you think Nintendo was mandating that people do that? <laughs> I mean, it was 1995,
1: so it wasn't like the technology was yeah. that much. I don't think Nintendo really would have cared by that point. It would have been maybe in, like, 1991, sure. But 1995, I think Nintendo was just like, do whatever you can. We're trying to get this Nintendo 64 thing out before we kill ourselves. I think Square was just trying to show off. Oh, they were absolutely showing off, and it wasn't necessary. The music was great for the race. That's about it.
0: In addition to our regular podcast, we also have a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday in which Nadia picks a topic and opines upon it. Nadia, what was the topic in this week's newsletter?
1: Well, first of all, I really like the use of the word opines. That's very good. That's a $10 word. I like that. Um, Today, uh, sorry, on Wednesday, I talked about uh, basically what what classes and jobs we favor in RPGs. And you and I have talked about this quite a bit in the show. But I was talking about how Final Fantasy XIV, I'm building up a dragoon, which is I know it's kind of a useless class, but by far just the coolest looking class. I I can't help myself. But when I'm not playing a Final Fantasy game, I will go for, first and foremost, an archer. I might go for a sword and board if, you know, there's nothing better available. What I won't do, almost ever, is use a magic user, except for a red mage. I will use a red mage, but I will not use a black mage or a white mage. I, we are totally
0: in the same boat, Nadia, which would make it very difficult for us to put together a a good party (laughs) because (laughs) I too am of the variety of like, I like to be an archer. I like to, I will do sword and board. I like to be kind of heroic. I like to have a weapon that I'm carrying around. Um, But I especially like being a hunter or anything where I can summon an animal friend.
1: Yeah. I like doing, I like being like a druid or a ranger that's all really cool to me but um yeah we would be screwed because it would be like oh who's healing not me not me when i played diablo 3 the first
0: thing i did was play as the demon hunter that was the me too. class yeah. that i went for so but i know that uh, our friend jason wilson who's been on the show in the past has said that he isn't a mage like some people are just really into the magic using
1: they really are. And I have to give a, a shout out to the people who are in Imagine using because they make playing Final Fantasy fourteen possible since most dungeons require a healer. Yeah, shout out
0: to everybody who's a
1: healer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen like comics where like, you know, healers are depicted usually as like, you know, just soft, gentle people who want to help everyone. But in real life, they're so bitter and angry because <laughs> they're exploited so much.
0: Oh, here's the interesting thing. When Overwatch was good, I was a Mercy main. Oh, Really? Yes, uh, OG Mercy, when they could still resurrect people before Blizzard completely re- wrecked it. Did they Did they take away uh, Mercy Resurrection? They completely changed the mechanics and it stunk. Because God, it used to sex. be that you could res the entire team if you did it right. But it took right. a lot of skill and a lot of timing. But they changed it so it was much more focused, a lot more nerfed, and uh, it's not great. It's one of the worst mistakes that they made in Overwatch, in my opinion.
1: Boo. Uh, put it on the pile of mistakes they've been making uh, recently, I guess.
0: <laughs> okay
1: let's continue onward to my
0: impressions we'll start with the one that it feels like we've been talking about for five years on this podcast because we literally yeah, have <laughs> nadia if we go back to our e3 2019 podcast um we heard your impressions when you got to play it you got to play through the opening level in uh midgar the attack
1: on the uh, Mako reactor yeah it's it's Mako I suppose it's kind of like how they tried to make Cecil from Final Fantasy 4 Cecil but I'm sorry he's Cecil
0: yeah it's, it's Mako gosh darn it come it's on making. Square long a yeah so go check out our impressions from back then but I got a much more extended impressions I got to play oh a good solid three hours of Final mm. Fantasy 7 remake nice the levels I got to play were the attack on the original Mako reactor the aftermath of the Mako Reactor, including a very crucial moment in Final Fantasy, or at least iconic. Mm-hmm. And then the, it fast-forwarded to the attack on the second Mako Reactor, uh, where you're fighting the Airbuster. Oh, yeah. I'm the, I used to call that thing the Dust Buster. I still do. And then, finally, the third boss fight was in the sewers after the uh, Don Corneo stuff. And that's mm-hmm. where you're fighting the, the big monster in the sewer, because, you know me and sewers <laughs> is my favorite thing. <laughs> they were like, cat's coming, let's give her a sewer level. So here are some of my initial thoughts, Nadia. First mm-hmm. of all, like you may have seen me ranting on Twitter on Friday about how Final Fantasy VII has the best opening. Oh my god, when the theme, when the logo appeared on the screen to the orchestral crash of the Final Fantasy VII theme, I've got goosebumps, legit goosebumps.
1: Yeah, um, I think I saw that when I played the game and I just, I think I, I've Played it several times in the opening video because uh, Square distributed that not long ago, and I just watched it over and over again because yes, it is a very cinematic, very iconic opening, uh, to the point that it was partially used when when Cloud was revealed for Smash.
0: Second thought is that man, that game is real pretty.
1: It's real nice.
0: Holy moly! So here's the thing: I don't think the environments look that great, honestly. Mm-hmm. Then again, the environments that they showed were very closed off and very claustrophobic. They were both of the Mako reactors and the sewers.
1: Yeah, um, of course, in the games, the Mako reactors, uh, God, now I'm saying Mako, thanks, Square. Uh, They're very, they are quite short, closed off areas. So I understand why they would not be extremely interesting to play.
0: But then also, I did get to see a little bit of Midgar after you leave. But again, it's a very linear section because you're going over rooftops, you're climbing down ladders, and then you're in the streets and you're seeing things happening. And you're supposed to look around while people are reacting to what happened at the Macra reactor. Mm -hmm. But it does that thing where it's like, don't go any further, this
1: this street is artificially blocked off, that kind of thing. <laughs> we're the cops, we're the invisible cops when we're blocking off this street, sorry. Yeah, there
0: there were lots of barriers. It was a very small area for you to be able to explore.
1: Yeah, Um. I wonder if that's in the game or just for the demo. It could be either or. So as time kind of wore on, the uh, initial
0: impact of the graphics wore off a little bit because the actual environments I just didn't think were very great. They put so much of their resources into the characters, which makes a lot of sense. They look great. The combat feels fantastic. But the actual environments, I'm a little less certain on.
1: Oh, well, that's, again, it, that's something I'll have to see for myself once I play the full game, because I have been wondering, okay, is Midgar going to be like this really... Uh, what's the word I want to use here, like just like disgustingly beautiful city that you see in the videos that Square has been showing us, or are we going to run into those, you know, those invisible cot barriers and be confined to those corridors for the whole game? I don't think that's going to be the case, but I do worry a little bit.
0: Yeah, I really hope they nail the beauty of like Eris's church and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I just like the contrast between uh, like her home and uh, just the rest of Midgar is very, very nice in the vanilla game.
0: So the combat. Uh, I think I like the combat. So it's very chaotic. It is, yes. So, I mean, the way it works is every character, it's kind of hack and slash in a way, but it also has a tactical element in that you can slow time to a crawl. And use special abilities whenever your uh, ATB gauge charges. And the way you charge your ATB gauge is to attack. And so the computer will attack, but often you can also select their abilities when needed. For example, it's usually best to play as Cloud and then have Barrett snipe uh, turrets, for example,
1: yeah. if they're being annoying. Uh, yeah. Um, how did you feel about the combat versus Final Fantasy 15? Oh, I thought it was way better
0: than the combat in Final Fantasy Yeah, 15. I think so,
1: too. It's, it is, it is as you say, chaotic, but not without purpose. Uh, Final Fantasy 15 is a lot more uh, press a button and pray. Final Fantasy
0: 15's combat felt almost like a bastardized version of Final Fantasy 12's combat. Yeah, you're right about that. And then also, I just did not like the swooping around thing where you're jumping up to the hooks in the sky. <laughs> I could never get the hang of that, and it was vital in some parts. And I thought that it was also kind of too easy because even if you died, you always got an opportunity to use the Phoenix Down.
1: Yeah, um, I did like Final Fantasy XV a lot, but it wasn't the most, like, technically sound game put together.
0: Yeah, Final Fantasy VII feels much heavier. It makes a lot more sense in the general... Generally speaking, it feels more tactical. I think it's better. That said, it is also extremely chaotic. And I think that once you get the hang of it, it's fine. And actually... So initially, I was having some trouble with the scorpion robot. Yeah, which is, I was having some trouble. So, funnily enough, one of the hardest bosses because it's just you and Barrett. Yeah. And you don't have a lot of abilities. You don't have any guardians behind you. And it's like a multi-part battle. It's like three segments. Yeah, it's a long one, as I recall. Yeah, so like, also, you don't have a lot of items. And so I kept losing Cloud. And then in the end, I had to basically wear it down with uh, Barrett.
1: Yeah, um, as I recall, one thing that does confuse me a bit with the combat is the idea of switching out between characters whenever it's necessary, because as you say, there are certain parts of an enemy, uh, particularly the scorpion bo- scorpion boss that only Barrett can hit with his uh, long range attack, and Cloud has his melee attack, so you have to know what parts to target and when, and that does take some getting used to, although... I see this being kind of like in the vein of playing Final Fantasy 4 DS after playing Final Fantasy 4 Vanilla for years and years and years. It's meant to screw with what you know and and shake things up. So I got to try out the summons. And once I got the summons, it actually got pretty easy.
0: Because <laughs> as usual, a summon is really strong, like insanely so. So the way it works is during a boss fight and only during a boss fight, you cannot summon a summon during a regular fight. You can... Uh, you can charge up a summon gauge like this, the summon gauge charges up Mm -hmm. and then you can summon the summon whenever you want. (laughs) And everybody has a summon attached to them eventually. And, but you can only pick one. So choose wisely. And so I used at various points, Shiva and Ifrit. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so you summon, uh, you, you summon one of those two and they start attacking for you. And they have very strong abilities, very, very strong abilities. So you want to just keep spamming that ability to really mess up an enemy. And if
1: they have an elemental weakness to that particular uh, summon, so much the better. Yeah, RIP. I'm thinking that they probably put those in for demo purposes because I remember the Final Fantasy VII demo for the PlayStation back in the day. Like It was the first, uh, strangely enough, the first Mako reactor, the same as we're getting here. Except they gave you some crazy-ass summons. Like, they gave you uh, Bahamut Neo, who's a god. You don't get him for hours and hours into the game. But I could tell Square really wanted to show off the cinematics of the summon. And, of course, Bahamut Neo, what he does is he literally lifts the enemies into heaven and and blasts them, like, down to earth again. And it, it was really, really cool to see the first time. So my guess is Square was just kind of showing off a little bit for the demo.
0: I do like how set piece the boss battles are and how elaborate they are and how they have multiple sections and they're kind of interesting and you have to be thoughtful in the way that you approach them. So, for example, when you're fighting the the spider robot in the initial Mako reactor, the, I think in the second segment it actually gets a shield and you have to target the, the weak point. Yeah.
1: yeah, I remember that. You do have to target the weak point and uh, if you don't, well, you're not going to get too far.
0: And then there's another section where it jumps up and it's going to launch a giant missile shots or missiles or something and you have to hide behind a barrier to not get completely obliterated so i like the way that it was using the environments so it's not just hack and slash in that regard
1: yeah um i'm hoping that all the bosses are really as well thought out as that how is the, the sewer boss i think his name is apps uh pretty good uh he leaps up onto the wall and is shooting at you so he's a little tough but i kind of wrecked him also because (laughs) i was using summons at that point (laughs) oh that'll do it uh yeah as i recall he was really really cheap in the original game like he would get you like a back attack and he he does the wave the wave attack is annoying yeah yeah it would be
0: yeah so i once i got the hang of the bot the the combat system it made a lot of sense to me because you know like uh every character has a special not just their special abilities but a mode that they can switch to Mm -hmm. which uh can ultimately usually is their way to ratchet up a ton of pressure on them and then when you get the gauge high enough you will stagger them kind of like in final fantasy 13 right and then you can then wail upon them and that's when you want to break out your best abilities so in that respect it makes a lot of sense
1: yeah, um, it was a good battle system, as I recall, and uh, I enjoyed my time with it. So here's some of my
0: criticisms of Final Fantasy VII Remake as it stands right now. I thought the second Mako Reactor level was pretty boring.
1: Yeah, there's, there's really nothing to it in the uh. I mean, Benelli it was boring in the either. original game. It really and was. They try
0: to beef it up, but beefing it up entails running to different rooms and finding these discs so that you can remove certain parts of the Airbuster. which is like... Eh, I, I don't I care. And you know that stupid, like, pull the lever at the same time minigame?
1: Oh, the puzzle, yes, that stupid they thing. They did it
0: again. They brought it back. Oh, why? Why would you do and that? It's That's only, such...
1: And it's even more elaborate. <laughs> it's so dumb. Why would you do that? I was thinking, well, at least they probably got rid of that damn puzzle where you all have to hit this stupid thing at once. Nope. So that entire level
0: lasts way too long. And it's really monotonous in terms of design. And then you get to the end and you fight the Airbuster, And the Airbuster is a good fight, but also kind of boring.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, as I recall, in the vanilla game, it's, you're kind of stuck. like in a, it, You have it in a pincer attack, but it's difficult because uh, uh, if you want to heal your whole party, it's not exactly possible.
0: Uh, my other criticism is that they front load some stuff that comes a lot
1: later. And mm-hmm. I don't think it does any favors for the pacing. I think I know what you're talking about. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to spoil anything. But um, if that is the case, that would be a little disappointing. But um, I could see why they did it because we live in such an impatient era when it comes to fan people. So I I would be disappointed. But at the same time, I understand why. So just as an
0: example, in the original game, the Midgar arc was kind of its own self-contained
1: thing. It was. Sephiroth is practically never mentioned. You're right. Uh, Sephiroth is... He's like a a name you hear once or twice, like the great Sephiroth, the hero of the war, and you don't start really knowing anything about him until you go to until you leave Midgar and see that flashback with Cloud.
0: Yeah, and then the first time you see, you know what happens in Shinra headquarters and everything, the spookiness with Genova, like that is such an effective scene, right? It is, and you're like going, "What the heck is going on? This is like really mysterious and cool." Whereas in this one. They are definitely keen to be like, yeah, let's let's make sure that you know who Sephiroth is right from the start. <laughs> hey, ladies, here's beautiful, beautiful Sephiroth. I mean, it's almost like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I understand.
0: Yeah, so I'm just kind of like, uh, I mean, I don't think this really aids the pacing. I can live with it. I see why they're doing it, but I don't love it. Yeah, um, I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss about that when the game finally comes out. And then the sequence where you meet Aerith is really baffling. Is because it? in the original game... I mean, it, it's like a really short moment, right? You've it is. You've escaped Midgar. You're in the streets. You're trying to get away. You're trying to escape back to Barrett and Tifa. And then you run into this flower girl. Yeah. And she's like, buy a flower? And you're like, no, go away. Or sure. <laughs> I always buy the flower. I always told her to go the heck away because I was trying to <laughs> date Barrett, And that was one of the one of the things to say. You can't ever like, build up your relationship with Aerith. Though this yeah, time I might date her because I like Aerith now. Yeah, so in this one, again, but they also weave in a lot of extra stuff. Uh, there's soldiers everywhere. There's kind of chaos. There are some of those front-loaded elements that I was telling you about going on. And mm-hmm. then a very weird sequence that I'm not even going to describe because
1: of spoiler purposes. But I was just like, what? What is going on? Why did this happen? What is this thing? <laughs> I have a feeling I might know what it is, because I've noticed that in the preview trailers, like, it looks like Cloud meets Aerith, and these weird spooky Dementor things, like, suddenly start swirling around, and I yes. looked at that and said, what is that? What, is the, what are they adding here? What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is going
0: and, on? Why did this happen? Like, so, I, I
1: understand, like, more chaos, because, of, of course, like, a a, a Mako reactor just blew up. But, yeah, that was weird. Don't like that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's a little strange. I'll have to see how they implement that. So I
0: kind of came away going... Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's beautiful. I think the combat, like, works. It mostly is in tune with the spirit of Final Fantasy VII. I appreciate. But it does feel... Oh, and the soundtrack is magnificent. Yeah, oh, it's the soundtrack is so beautiful. But it does feel like it sacrifices a little bit of the atmosphere that made the original so special.
1: Yeah, and that's the one thing I'm really interested to see because, in my opinion, there is very few games as atmospheric as Final Fantasy VII.
0: So, you should go check out my preview. It's over on the site. I talk about all of this stuff. Uh, We have a guided tour of the gameplay. You should go watch that. So, lots of things to cover over on the site, in addition to my impressions right here. Okay. So, we don't have a ton of time, but also I want to talk about Baldur's Gate 3 really quickly. Uh Uh-huh. As I already said, last week I went to an event where we watched a three-hour hands-off demo <laughs> where Larian CEO Sven Vinkie played Baldur's Gate 3. I think they said they wanted to give us hands-on opportunities, but it wasn't quite ready. And I could tell because it looked pretty buggy. But also, I think they kind of wanted to test run the spectator element of it. Right. And it was actually working really well. Oh, so, that's interesting. So here's the thing. It is, here are some of the key differences. It is not real-time with pause. It is a straight turn-based game with, uh, that uses environments heavily. It's kind of similar to Infinity Original Sin 2 in that regard. Lots of exploding barrels and that kind of thing. But also, it is very D&D. And mm. by very D&D, I mean there is literally a D20 die that appears in the UI. Oh, That wow. you will roll a lot of the time. You that roll sounds for initiative, really cool. Yeah. And then when you're rolling the die during crucial decisions, like that's the spectator element because you would be often getting uh, choices, right? Uh, On things to do. People would be like shouting out, Oh, you should do this. You should do that. And then they roll the die. And, you know, either it would be a success and everybody would be cheer or it'd be a failure and everybody would go,
1: Oh. So this game sounds very Twitch ready already.
0: Yes. There's a, a moment. So the character that they were playing as, so you can either create your own character or you can play as an origin profile that has a set backstory and everything. And one of the characters that you're playing as is a vampire spawn. And this vampire spawn has been infected with a thing called a tadpole, which is like this horrific brain grub that comes into oh, the eye. I know. Which from the is created by a mind flare. Normally what's supposed to happen is that it's slowly eating your brain, so you're not having such a good time, and then you eventually turn into a mind flare and it sucks. But mm-hmm. In this case, for some reason, everybody has stronger powers, and the vampire spawn can now walk around in daylight. Ooh. And the vampire spawn also is free of their master's influence, and so one of the ways that they try this out is they feed on a party member. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're not supposed to, like, it's against the rules to feed on living people. Uh Uh-huh. And so you're going to feed on a party member just to test the limits of your newfound kind of freedom and that sort of thing. And to try it, you have to hit a pretty high threshold on your D20 die. Totally Mm -hmm. succeeded. Everybody cheers. They're feeding on the party member. But then you (laughs) got to stop. And if you don't hit the threshold to stop, that party member will die. Oh, that's pretty funny, actually. That's embarrassing. Whoa, I drained my party member.
1: Oops, that's my
0: bad. Uh, compared to Divinity Original Sin 2, Baldur's Gate 3, much more elaborate in terms of graphics. Fully voiced cutscenes. scenes is very pretty.
1: That's cool. So it looks pretty promising.
0: Yes, it kind of reminds me of Dragon Age Origins, but e- way more elaborate. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, Dragon Age Origins was intended to be the AAA modern successor to Baldur's Gate. So that kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, I talked to the developer. I mean, the branching sounds really interesting. There's going to be an entire skill tree devoted to tadpole powers Ooh, uh, that gross. if you tap into the tadpole in your brain, you'll get interesting powers, but at a cost. Yeah, uh, The whole tadpole thing squicks me out, right? Th- just oh, bleh. oh God, yes, I can't I could not even deal like I wrote about I wrote as much in my uh, write up of the trailer. I was just like, I cannot even deal.
1: With this no. fucking cutscene, it is so gross. I noped out pretty fast.
0: There are other people who are like, "Hey, I like that." I'm like, "What are you talking
1: about?" <laughs> See, I don't even like horror movies that much, so no. Nah. Body horror is the worst. It really is. I can't. St- I can't. T- I'm the kind of person who like faints when they get a blood test. I just can't.
0: So I just I really like Larian because they have risen so rapidly over the course of this generation. Uh, their technology has improved step by step. This is a huge breakout opportunity for them. They are defiantly themselves at every turn. They will never uh try and water down what they're doing in the at the in favor of trying to hit some kind of arbitrary mainstream. They're like, "No, we make hard R- core RPGs. That's what we do. That's what we're going to continue to do and that's what they're doing with Baldur's Gate 3." I appreciate that. Yeah. So I mean, I will be playing this. It'll be coming out on PC and Stadia to start, so it'll be a little harder to access. But recently, I got my computer working a little bit better, so maybe it'll run okay. Oh, congratulations. There's no way my computer's going to take it. (laughs) (laughs) And they were supposedly saying that they might have a hard time getting on Xbox One and PS4, which is interesting. So I wonder if that's them basically implicitly saying that when PS5 gets announced, Baldur's Gate 3 will be announced for PS5.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. We'll see. Guess we will.
0: So go check out my coverage of Baldur's Gate three over on the site. I talk about how term based was always the thing that they were going to do. I talked about how they improved the engine. I talked about, uh, or I had them talk about their misgiv or concerns about Stadia, uh, because you know Stadia hasn't been having such a great time. Yeah, let's let's put it that way. Uh, they we t- they talked at some length about the branching narrative. Uh, it's all good stuff. And there's, there's so much to dig into with that three-hour demo. Like, I didn't even touch on the ways that you can manipulate darkness uh, when it comes to stealth, which is really cool. Uh, you have something called a Stygian Arrow, which can cast zones of darkness. Oh, it's interesting. It's interesting stuff. So that uh, are all of my impressions from Final Fantasy VII Remake and Baldur's Gate 3. Nadia, it's time to move on to the console RPG quest. Don't go away. Okay, it's time to continue on with our console RPG quest. If you're not familiar with the console RPG quest, which we did just recently, our quest is to review pretty much every major console that has come out going back to the days of the Atari 2600 and talk about the evolution of RPGs, their individual console RPG. Legacies. There are some that have amazing uh, RPG legacies, see the PlayStation and the SNES, and some that don't have such great RPG <laughs> legacies, see the N64. But yeah. we try to make hay of it. The PlayStation 2 is one of the most significant RPG consoles ever. Uh, in my opinion, it is probably second only to the Super Nintendo in terms of greatness. I think that it has certainly the breadth, a breadth that you will not find in any other console. So many newcomers rose up from, especially on the Japanese side, during what was the kind of the last hurrah of Japan's true golden age. That was the PlayStation 2. Uh, Just an enormous library. The PlayStation 2 is the biggest selling console of all time. I think the only reason that the Super Nintendo might have a little bit of an advantage, Nadia, is Mm. that while it doesn't necessarily have the breadth of the PlayStation 2, it does have some unassailable classics that the PS2 can't quite reach.
1: Yeah, um, the PlayStation 2, like, unless you were there, it's really hard to overstate how, how popular this thing was, like... Sony had a brilliant move by making it a cheap DVD player on top of a game console because that's how it got into everybody's living everybody's living rooms because that was like the time when DVDs were taking off and players were still like $400, 500 You buy so, a PlayStation
0: 2, you buy a Matrix DVD, there yes, you go.
1: <laughs> there you go. It was the 90s, no, early aughts combination. It was unbeatable. Uh, I personally did not have a PS2 for a long time because I was very poor at this point in time. I had just gotten married and all my money was going to rent, uh, and I backed the GameCube, which we'll get into the GameCube RPG Quest soon enough, I'm sure, but that, it was not the greatest RPG machine in history. I could still appreciate just the amazing things PlayStation 2 was doing, even if often I had to watch from a distance and be like, oh, they have Suikoden in Three, I have Smash. Womp womp. Smash <laughs> is good, though. Oh, Smash Smash was fantastic. No one no was against Smash. Don't
0: badmouth but- Smash.
1: <laughs> Smush, smoush, <laughs> smosh. Uh, when did you get a when did you get a PS2, Nadia? Uh, I can't remember when I finally bought one, but I do know at one point my husband was working for Blockbuster and so he would rent one like pretty much continuously and uh I wanted one really badly because uh, Mega Man X8 was coming out and so I had to kind of have
0: it for that. So, I think my biggest mistake was not buying a PS2 right when it came out.
1: Yeah, so I can understand that <laughs>
0: completely. So when the PS2 came out, I was working my first part-time job. I had disposable income for the first time in my
1: life. Ooh,
0: what an exciting time. I probably could have afforded it, but I didn't. I blew it on other things. Um, hookers and blackjack and that kind gonna of thing. I was going to say, without re-blowing it on hookers. A Dreamcast. Okay, that's, uh, GBA. that's something. GBA
1: is a good purchase, I'm sorry. Uh, not in, not not initially. I could've waited. I could've waited till the S P. That's fair. Okay, if you got the if you got the original, that is a little bit of a eh.
0: Yeah. So the PS two comes out, I remember being utterly blown away by how good Madden looked compared to the PlayStation version. I just could not fathom how incredible the zombie eyed football players actually looked. <laughs> But it was still a huge jump from the PlayStation, the oh, graphics. Gigantic. Gigantic. Uh, it was ridiculous. I, My mind was legitimately blown. But there were also new games for it. So bouncer. The Bouncer. Yeah, back when Square was still in the I must buy everything that Square makes uh, phase. Yeah, so there was basically nothing early on. But then in 2001, Final Fantasy X comes out, uh, GTA 3 comes out, and we are off and running with the PlayStation 2. We are,
1: II. especially GTA 3. Holy crap.
0: But I did not buy a PlayStation Two until two thousand and five, Nadia, because, oh. like
1: you, I backed the wrong horse. I bought
0: a GameCube. <laughs> Good a little cube, little lunchbox with a handle. Don't get me wrong; I got many great hours out of my GameCube. Oh, but me too. The PlayStation Two is one of the most significant consoles in my life, from as in terms of what I owned, uh, because oh my god, I bought a PlayStation Two Slim in early two thousand five. Mm. I have one of those, yes. With my student loan money, that was maybe a mistake. <laughs> Good purchase, Kat. Um And I took it with me to Japan, naturally. I ended up modding it and putting a flip-top lid on it so that wow. I could play... Uh, Japanese PS2 games I mean, like I, I bought it I, I modded it when I wanted to play Final Fantasy 12 in Japanese which I did not play much of it because uh, that gets a very complicated game to play in Japanese it really is I, w- I would be lost in two seconds I mean I, how good is
1: your Japanese
0: not amazing but good enough that I can play most Japanese games and make my like navigate the menus and everything right. but I o- often only have a a little bit of an understanding of what's actually happening in the story. At my very best, at the very peak of my Japanese ability, I was starting to be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more than the gist here. I think I understand this. Like, I recognize those kanjis. Like, I can derive meaning without directly translating it. Hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. But then I lost that. <laughs>
1: yeah, if you're not there, you're going to lose it.
0: Yeah, so I modded it. Uh, this is when I got into my giant Super Robot Wars kick. <laughs> oh, yeah. I played Super Robot Wars Alpha 2, Alpha 3, and MX and Z on my PlayStation 2 while living in Japan. While I was living in Japan, while everybody else was playing their 360 and PS3, I was playing PS2 still. Because the PS2 lived on until from like 2001 until at least 2010. There were still Japanese oh, yeah. games coming out on the PS2.
1: Yeah, like, especially Japan embraced the PS2, and it just went on and on. Um, was it not region-free? It was not. Okay, I thought it yeah, was. Yeah, you you
0: had to do certain things with the, the the way that the tray came out, but then with the PS2 Slim, you could do the flip-top, and then you could put in a disc, and that would change it so that you would be able to effectively change it into a debug unit so that you could boot up Japanese games. I discovered this... <laughs> when I got a debug version, I think of uh Suik- not Suikoden, uh Sakura Tyson. And right. I initially couldn't boot it up because I didn't have a debug PS two, but once I stuck it well one
1: but I did the, the, the import trick and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, one other really incredible thing about the PS2 that was really vital for RPGs was it was backwards compatible. Yes, it was.
0: And in fact, it was kind of a big deal because Final Fantasy IX came out the same year. That's right. That the PS2 did. And so you maybe bought it. Final Fantasy IX and then you didn't have a lot of games to play on it, but you could play a really dang good version, nice looking version of PS2 because the PS2 would upgrade the the actual graphics of the PS1 games.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know by how much. I never tried it much myself. I did play Chrono Cross on the PS2, but I couldn't f- do it for long because for some reason my PS2 would not take my memory card for that game. I still don't know what the deal was with that. But uh, yeah, I think... I mean, Final Fantasy IX is notoriously slow, but I hear it sped up quite a bit on the PS2. The thing was that once you got a PS2, PS1 games looked really dated immediately. They did. Honestly. Uh, unfortunately, yeah.
0: I remember... So... My friend got a PS2 relatively early on, and in the sp- Christmas, I want to say, of 2002, uh, he was nice enough to loan it to me, and oh. uh, this was the same friend who loaned me a PlayStation so I could play Final Fantasy VII. So oh, what a good friend. I-, I owe him a lot, I guess. Um, so I'm playing on PS2. I, play Final Fan- I played through Final Fantasy X over that break. Then I was like, so I enjoyed Final Fantasy X so much that I was like, okay. Time to go back to the PlayStation. Uh, Final Fantasies. Time to replay Final Fantasy VII. I just could not do it. <laughs> it was too dated. You were just like, "Ew, I can't stand this anymore." And that was the first time I started to want a Final Fantasy VII remake. Ah, you and the rest of the world. Well, I mean, there were hints that Final Fantasy Seven, Eight, and Nine would be remade on the PS2 in, in that time. I don't even remember that. Yeah, because there was a giant. Uh, there was a moment where on like one of the Final Fantasy fan sites where Final Fantasy, like basically Final Fantasy 10, 11 and 12 were all announced at once. And there were that. reports of Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9 being remade for the thing.
1: Wow. So like they say remakes are kind of a big thing today. I guess back then, if that had happened, that would have been pretty huge. This was back when Final Fantasy was borderline like Call
0: of Duty in like how mm-hmm. often it came out.
1: It was. It was for a while there. It was practically yearly.
0: Yeah, I miss it. It was great. <laughs> it was pretty. It was a pretty good time to be alive. Yeah, right. Oh, I miss it. Uh. So yeah, talking about Final Fantasy X, I think I've talked about it on this a little bit in the past about how I don't think it's held up particularly well, and I don't love Titus as a character. In fact, there is a Kotaku article, and I think we referenced this on the podcast about how uh, what your least favorite Final Fantasy s- says about you. Yes, yes, we did reference that. And I went down to 10, and it was basically like, you're kind of salty that a really good story is usurped by a kid with daddy issues, who <laughs> keeps going on about how it's his story. Yeah,
1: he really has a thing for Jack, doesn't he? Friggin' Tidus hijacks Yuna's story. Yeah, I know that much, even though I haven't played Final Fantasy X. But Final Fantasy X was quite gorgeous
0: for the time. It was a real showcase for what the PS2 could do, which is good, because... Uh, the PS2 was, this was right when the Xbox and the GameCube had come out and the PS2 was already considered to kind of not be as good as the Xbox in terms of graphics. Mm -hmm. And Halo was like just this remarkable, uh, console art, console showcase in 2001. So Final Fantasy X was the counter to that.
1: Yeah, by the time uh, the Xbox and the GameCube came around, the PlayStation 2 wasn't really looking not so much long in the tooth, but just a little bit aged. It was known to be a little bit creaky compared to those two. But not
0: really, because so many of the best GameCube games did in fact come out on the PlayStation 2, like Resident Evil 4.
1: Yeah, eventually, because, well, they didn't really sell <laughs> on the GameCube. But you're right, Resident Evil 4 was a big one. Well, Final Fantasy
0: X... Uh... It was the last good traditional Final Fantasy. After that, Final Fantasy went off the rails, in my opinion.
1: It did, I mean, it did go a lot off the rails, but it didn't necessarily always not... Not you know. always in a bad way. Exactly, yeah, that's what I mean.
0: Like, um, Final Fantasy twelve went in some really interesting directions in many ways. I just will always have a mental block because I, miss, I prefer traditional Final Fantasy.
1: Yeah, I mean, me too, of course, I grew up with like 4, 5, and 6, and like all those really retro ones so they're always very special to me so i know what you mean i kind of feel like final fantasy is lined up in my head and when you get around uh 10 it all kind of gets a little bit scrambled up i i
0: liked the boss battles in that game i liked the way that they handled the summons i liked the way that you could swap in characters at will i thought it had an outstanding cast i thought uh lulu and kamari and uh, riku they were all great Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I said, it's still relatively pretty today. It had some of the best art direction in Final Fantasy. It had a cohesive world. Yeah, I mean, it,
1: it, and it had a really good story outside of you know Titus. Yeah, it had a um a fantastic soundtrack, except for that really unfortunate end theme. But yeah, what was the really
0: unfortunate end theme?
1: Oh, is that the one the screaming death metal, very
0: oh, odd sort of thing? Everyone I wanted to be. I think Katie said she down. likes that
1: song. Uh, millennials, man, I don't know what to make of you guys. <laughs> we are millennials. <laughs> I don't know what I am. I'm like kind of like you know. You're an exennial. I'm an exennial. I totally am. But either way, I was never into the the screaming sort of thing that really took over in the odds.
0: I went after I finished Final Fantasy Ten. I went back. So after Final Fantasy Ten, we get Final Fantasy Eleven. So I have no beef with Final Fantasy Eleven. I'm going to tell you the truth, but. I'm going to be that annoying person. I absolutely <laughs> hate that it has its numbered.
1: Yeah, I was never, even 14 to me feels weird to be numbered. Although I guess now that it has such a flushed out story, I can accept it. But 11, that was very controversial when it was a numbered MMORPG.
0: Yeah, it ruined the flow. It <laughs> the did. Final fa- how, how do you rank all of the Final Fantasies, but then you have to include the MMOs? Come on.
1: Yeah, think of our lists here, Square. You're being very inconsiderate.
0: (laughs) Final Fantasy XI, and it really speaks to where RPGs were in the PlayStation 2 era. MMORPGs were becoming more and more popular, and I hated it.
1: Yeah, um, I was not a big fan because I could not afford a subscription, uh, even if I did have the the internet connection for it. I didn't want to play online. I wanted to play a story that I could just go through about myself and not have to worry about raids and dungeons and stuff. I just straight up didn't understand MMOs. I thought they were kind of ugly. I didn't understand
0: how the online worlds worked. I didn't really think the combat was that good or that interesting. So I kind of wrote them off at the time. And this was pre-World of Warcraft. So Final Fantasy XI was much more in that Star Wars Galaxy slash uh, uh, EverQuest vein.
1: Yeah, that was like... I'm I'm thinking for some reason that Final Fantasy XI came after World of Warcraft, but no, it didn't. It came before, didn't it? Nope, it it was like 2002, in fact. Yeah, and that was a very different time for MMORPGs. They were a little more technical than they are today.
0: I seem to recall that there was a thing called a World Pass that you had to get. Uh, It was like actually
1: really annoying to get on your friend's server. It still is in 14, but yes.
0: Yeah, so that was super annoying. I It was a very hardcore RPG with multi-hour raids and that kind of thing. And I remember a lot of World of Warcraft people. People who thought World of Warcraft was for babies would say, (laughs) "Uh, I'm all about Final (laughs) Fantasy XI. Yeah, yeah, the whole, like, that was the era of Evercrack. But it was well-supported. It lasted a long time on PC in particular. But I don't know. Like, I always found... Final, I always viewed Final Fantasy XI as this hostile invading agent that shouldn't be on the PS2. The
1: evil alien that infiltrated everything.
0: And then Final Fantasy XII comes out and again, adopts this MMO crap that I just did not want.
1: Yeah, but it was a single-player game. It just had the MMO yeah, elements. But I hated the battle. Uh, I,
0: I just not- will never really like the auto-attacking, how awkward it is to give directions. I don't care for the gambit system. I don't really understand the limit break system in that game. It is gorgeous. It has an incredible soundtrack. I think that the Zodiac Age did so much to rehabilitate that it had a much improved licensing system. I think the story is better than it gives it's given credit for. And I can even deal with the battle system now.
1: But yeah, yeah. it will
0: always be tainted for me in that regard.
1: Yeah, um, I never got to play the original. I do have it. My husband gave it to me as a gift, but I waited for Zodiac Age when I'd love to get that on the Switch if I had time, because I loved Zodiac Age. It was my first experience with Twelve. Uh I think Twelve has one of the best Final Fantasy environments. I love Evil So uh yeah. Um I'm kind of upset that I didn't get to play Twelve when it first came out, but I do remember a lot of people felt like you. They were a little bit uh, antsy about having to play an MMO uh, RPG style single-player RPG. They didn't like the gambit system, and the gambit system is a weird thing. It feels like using macros from the 90s. And the flavor was so weird compared to the rest of the Final Fantasy, because it was it way was. more
0: Final Fantasy Tactics-like.
1: Like, like, like I said, it's Evilly. So if you played Tactics, if you played um, uh, Vagrant Story, which I had at that point, it was a little bit recognizable. Uh, which is why they shoehorned in Vaughn. <laughs> uh, Vaughn, poor Vaughn. Yeah, so, I mean, so you're playing basically as Aladdin. I don't know. You totally are. One thing that kind of bothered me when I turned on the game, it's like, okay, here's this desert land. Uh, Nobody wears clothes properly, and everyone's just pale, ghostly white. I'm like, what is going on here? This is freaking me out a bit. So we'd be remiss
0: if we talked about Square without mentioning the fact that this was a very uh, tough period for Square because Final Fantasy Spirits Within came out in 2000 and was an abject flop. A complete failure to the point that it put a proposed merger between Square and Enix in danger. And this is a watershed moment for Japanese RPGs because two of the biggest and the greatest JRPG developers merged for the first time. And honestly, it did not make things for the better. In fact, I think it made things a lot worse.
1: Um, of course, Square Enix comes out with a lot of games now that I absolutely adore and love. But yes, I feel like Enix, before it became part of Square, had a very distinct flavor to it. Uh, I've mentioned many times the Quintet games. I feel like those just cannot exist as Square Enix. They're more of an Enix thing.
0: I mean, it's so, Valkyrie Profile and there you go, working with Trias under Enix, you know. The Enix publishing label gave us so many great RPGs, and they really were kind of the yin to... Uh, Square's Yang, and then once they merge, I mean, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest retained their separate identities, which was good, but so many worthy games, like Valkyrie Profile, ended up getting buried.
1: Yeah, um, it's nothing against Square Enix. Like I said, they make great games, but yes, there is a certain benefit to having such big RPG developers remain separate and do their own thing, although they did come together for Chrono Trigger, and that was pretty amazing. And the thing that I also don't like is that
0: once Square and Enix had merged, they kind of became this mega core, right? And they felt yes. like they had to be of scale, and they had to compete directly with the likes of Ubisoft and EA. And that meant delving into Western publishing, which often has not been that great, honestly. And, I mean, their Outriders game does not look good. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have to admit that's true. Hitman um, so was alright, but then they, tossed, they kicked it to the curb, like their western right. branch has made a lot of bad decisions and i just i don't understand like why wouldn't you go for western rpgs know who you are stay in your lane Get an <laughs> identity it costs zero dollars to stay in your lane and mind your own business <laughs> and then on the japanese side they're so concerned with being a true AAA a experience that the games friggin' take years and years and years to come out
1: yeah Yeah, that's absolutely true. I understand why it would take longer nowadays because, of course, developing for HD is is quite difficult. But, But, I mean, uh, Capcom is putting out classic (laughs) feeling games like Devil May Cry 5.
0: Exactly. That are gorgeous because they have really flexible technology
1: in Monster Hunter World and
0: don't take a billion years to develop.
1: That's very true. And uh, just uh, diverting for a second, Capcom had to learn that the hard way because, of course, they had a really rough time where... They were trying so hard to appeal to Western audiences and they just lost sight of who they are. And they've been going back gradually to doing, you know, like, hey, people want Devil May Cry? Here's your Devil May Cry. And I feel like Square Enix really has to learn that again. Like, why are they so scared of a Valkyrie profile? That kind of thing. Why can't you make it easy for us to play these games that we want so badly?
0: Yeah, it feels like I have no grudge against innovation and that kind of thing.
1: Uh, Final Fantasy XII,
0: ultimately, I kind of admire that it tried something new, even if ultimately, to me, in my mind, it's a critical break in where I started to not like Final Fantasy as much as I did before. I also think that there's such a thing as understanding what your identity is. It's not like Capcom has sacrificed all innovation, you know, and it's just Mm -hmm. running it back over and over and over again. They are creating these really gorgeous games that are ex- executed extremely well and hit upon all of their strengths. That's good. That's okay. That is an okay thing to do sometimes.
1: Yeah, it's totally okay to play your strengths. Uh, one time, I think in my Dragon Quest Eight review, it was where I would said it. I compared Square Enix to like uh, a, a kid who climbs up the, the like the big fence to see on a baseball field and like gets really drunk and says like you know look at me and jumps off and either, like, makes a really fantastic landing or breaks every bone in his body. So the
0: other thing that, I mean, maybe is emblematic of the Square Enix change is Kingdom Hearts, which Mm -hmm. came out in 2002 and was a big deal and continues to be one of the most beloved Square properties that I don't like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Square, I have to say Kingdom Hearts when I saw it, especially Kingdom Hearts 2. It just totally missed me. I said, this is not a game for my grungy old self which grew up with like final fantasy six and the the silly sprites and i I just do not approve of this i just never understood because it always felt like it should be totally in my
0: wheelhouse because i like disney i i I grew up with little mermaid and aladdin and lion king and all that so being able to play in those worlds is cool and i like square (laughs) it has final fantasy characters in it and you know it's it's fine but Uh, You know, I I borrowed it from my friend when it first came out and was playing it, and it lost me at the Tarzan level, because I was kind of lost, and the world was kind of boring, and I didn't care for the combat. The hack and slash combat was really boring, and so that was kind of that, right? And it just, I tried again in 2005 when I bought my PlayStation 2 for myself, and again, it just did not grab me.
1: I think for a lot of people, it's one of those entry points where a certain RPG brings in a lot of people who aren't big into RPGs, but something really calls out to them, like, of course, Final Fantasy VII, I've mentioned Mario RPG, you know, since Mario was there, people wanted to play as Mario, and I think with Kingdom Hearts, it was like, hey, oh, hey these are Disney characters, I want to play this, so I think people like Katie is a good example, just really latched onto it because it was their first RPG experience, and it was delivered through Disney.
0: I also hella re- resent Kingdom Hearts because once <laughs> Kingdom Hearts was successful, it started to overtake everything that Square did. And Square became obsessed with this notion of making action games. And yes. when Final Fantasy thirteen came out, it had that stupid Final Fantasy versus thirteen by the Kingdom Hearts staff, which seemed to, they stretched themselves too thin, and we'll get to this later... But they had to have an action RPG, and this is where the point where Square started to lose faith in turn-based mechanics outside of Dragon yeah. Quest, and I hate that. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a, you know, we talked about how it was kind of a golden age for RPGs, but at the same time, it was a very, as you say, tumultuous time. Uh, that's probably why I look back much more fondly on the SNES and the PlayStation eras. But then, you know,
0: Katie loved Kingdom Hearts, and there is an entire generation that grew up with Kingdom Hearts and
1: still adore it to this day. And Kingdom Hearts 2, undeniably gorgeous. Yeah, but it was so boring. I remember looking <laughs> at Setzer and saying, why are you popping balloons with a child? Don't you own an airship and, like, a gambling empire? So, hey, do you love Kingdom Hearts? I really want to know why. Like,
0: share your love with King- of Kingdom Hearts to me. As far as I can tell, there are people who are really invested in the lore. That's fine. That's good. Uh, I, there are people who are really invested in the Disney stuff. Unfortunately, after Kingdom Hearts 1, the Disney stuff fell off a lot. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's a very pretty game. Uh, it had good sound effect track. I have nothing else nice to say about Kingdom Hearts.
1: Uh, I will say it is really super cool that canonically, Donald Duck is one of the most powerful mages in the entire Square Enix universe because <laughs> he can cast Zeta Flare. That's pretty only, funny. That they is did. hilarious. Yeah, that's cool. They did fun things with Goofy Donald and Mickey. I'll yeah, give them that much. exactly. Yeah, so like I don't, there's a very, very few characters who can cast Data Flare in the whole, in the whole canon of Square Enix, and he's one of them. Okay, so we've
0: spent a lot of time dwelling on Square Enix, but here's the thing with the PlayStation 2, Nadia. I think what makes the PlayStation 2 interesting is where is that it's where Square started to become less of the juggernaut that it was, and a lot of other RPG developers started bringing, frankly, more interesting and much more hardcore RPGs into the limelight the best thing about the playstation 2 in my opinion is that compared to the super nintendo and even the playstation 1 was that the playstation 2 was
1: where we started getting all of the rpgs all of them (laughs) that is true and i mean you saw the rise of atlas that's very big uh you saw the rise of level five maybe we didn't really know these these companies as household names yet but they were on their way
0: I mean, there were exceptions, of course. I mean, Super Robot Wars did not come out here. Uh, mm-hmm. Tales of Rebirth did not come out here. But we started getting things like Shimagami Tensei Three Nocturne, which is not a game that we've talked about a huge
1: amount, but is one of the favorite touchdowns of SMT hipsters everywhere. <laughs> it is very much the hipster game for SMT fans because it was. Um of course it wasn't the first smt game we got here but i believe it was the first one to really get some western recognition uh in part because it is brutally hard yes it i mean okay if you look at what square was doing in the super nintendo and the
0: playstation era it was making very accessible experiences yes ultimately and atlas was full-on f that we are making <laughs> an insanely hard old school rpg <laughs> who wants to die tonight I mean, I if you look at
1: Nocturne, first of all, it was a very
0: beautiful game.
1: It does look good for the PS2.
0: Yes, with a distinct art style. It has a very complex battle system that forces you to... Like, I was complaining just now about how Square got away from turn-based roots and getting into this action-based BS. Well, SMT Nocturne is the, you know, the antidote to that. It mm-hmm. is... It is, in many ways, the basis of what a lot of that formed a lot of the subsequent SMT games to come. A lot of the elements are very familiar, uh, for example, in the way that turns are handled. uh, When you use an attack to hit at a weakness of an enemy, uh, Mm -hmm. you'll get more turns. But then if the enemy hits your weakness, then they will also get more turns. So it's a back and forth. And it is extremely unforgiving in that regard.
1: Yeah. And it is a dungeon crawler, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is very much a dungeon
1: crawler. Yeah, um, very, very classic. You're unlocking
0: parts of the world after the apocalypse, and you're returning to these incredibly elaborate dungeons that you practically have to map out by hand because you're just going to get lost. It's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was never a fan of retro dungeon crawlers uh, that you have to map by hand. Although it is interesting to go back to SMT3 and as a someone who has played like more modern smt games and of course the persona games and see those demons and how the designs and how they've evolved over the years because the same demons populate the same just populate this universe and they always have some design changes but uh not always i, I just like seeing how they grow the game with dante for some reason <laughs> yeah what the heck was that <laughs> i mean devil may cry was a big deal on he the did have several two. crossovers as i recall like he would just kind of appear in an rpg like hey i'm dante from devil may cry and I, I mean there there were devils In SMT. Yeah, there are several devils in SMT, as I recall.
0: There are plenty of Nocturne stands out there, but it's not talked about as much as Persona for a reason. And that's because, much like SMT4 and SMT Strange Journey, it is just, it pulls absolutely no punches. And because it has more limited accessibility, and it is also like, has more of a limited story. It, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, last week when we were talking about our loves and hates and RPG tropes, I mean, you made it abundantly clear that you like your stories and you like your characters and you yes. like your characters that you can romance and that kind of thing. And SMT Nocturne doesn't really have that. Yeah, so it is a hardcore, mechanics-driven dungeon crawler. And that's great if you have yeah. the patience for it and everything. <laughs>
1: And there are lots of people who do. Lots of people love that dungeon... Like, I kind of reserve my dungeon-crawling itch for Etrian Odyssey because I feel mm. like it's much more accessible of the of the dungeon-crawling games. But, yeah, I appreciate the fact that there are people out there who just love their hardcore dungeon-crawlers because, well, that's what some of them grew up with. So why change what works? I mean, and
0: this was kind of a watershed moment for RPGs because uh, one of the most important uh, RPG series around came out in america for it became more of a thing in america than it had ever been on any of the previous consoles uh it was no longer such a niche thing i didn't hear about smt personally until about not 2009 and because I, I did not realize that persona and smt were connected
1: yeah me neither um i had a friend who was really big into smt and was always drawing fan art and i always thought it looked kind of cool but i didn't really know much about it
0: yeah because persona came out on the playstation one like way back in the late 90s but i totally missed out on that and then when smt3 nocturne comes out suddenly for americans there's this gigantic other anime driven hardcore rpg series that went all the way back to the original famicom that they could delve into and explore and it was just such mana from heaven it was kind of
1: fans another fire emblem moment where suddenly like the curtain is pulled back and it's like hey kids look what we have for you and you're like wow this has been going on for a very long time and i had no idea
0: and then meanwhile there was also this little game called persona 3 which uh the first time i heard about it was through talking time actually because it was a very popular
1: gift on talking time It it was a very i remember that it was it was a it was the game that everyone was playing for a very long time yeah, I missed it when it first came out.
0: The first time I ever heard of Persona 3 was when Penny Arcade did a comic about uh, high school students shooting themselves in the head.
1: <laughs> I don't remember that one, but I have to go back and check it out. And I was like, no way, That surely there is not a game like this. And yes, there was a game like that. Yeah, that was. Um, I think that was the first way I heard about Persona as well, is like kids shooting themselves in the head. I'm like, what kind of lord bullshit is this? But I got a copy of Persona 3 Fez
0: uh, for Festivus. And so that was the first time that I got to start playing through Persona Three, and then, but then I delved into it much more seriously when Persona Four came out, and I did a, I had this weekly, I had a weekly series called the Monthly Grind. I remember that. Yes, where I would pick an RPG and I would write about it for each week for several days, um, and it was fun. It was a, it was a fun little project, and Persona Four was one of the games that I picked up, and so. That was when I truly got into it. But Persona 3 for a long time was the game for hard- hardcore RPG fans. And a lot of people didn't accept Persona 4 right away. Uh, Katie and Hiren both prefer Persona 3, actually.
1: Yeah, um, it's funny that I haven't played Persona 3 yet myself. So I'd really love to see it on the Switch. Please, someday, thank you. So
0: we've talked about Persona 4 and Persona in general ad nauseum. So we're not going to like cover it too much here. But suffice it to say, like getting these kinds of really rich RPGs really made the PS2 RPG library something special.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, if nothing else, the PS2 library was very diversified in terms of RPGs. Uh, Yes, we didn't like the fact that Square went more action-oriented, but they did change things up. Uh, Persona, there was really nothing like Persona at the time, which is a dating sim combined with fighting demons. Where are you going to get that? Uh, We had, of course, SMT3, which is... uh, a dungeon crawler. We didn't really have that many dungeon crawlers on consoles back then. So, yeah, even though the SNES and, and PlayStation were fantastic eras, they did play things quite safe compared to the PS2.
0: So, looking at some of the other important PS2 debuts, uh, Disgaea was a yeah. true breakout hit for N- NIS. This is where. Uh, N.A.S. started to form its own particular identity. (laughs) Interestingly enough, uh, the original Disgaea, which if for some reason you've been living under a rock and you don't know what Disgaea is, it's a tactics RPG that's very anime-focused, very humorous, and Mm -hmm. has this area called the item world, which is basically unlimited grinding if you want to for some reason. Item world, is that what it's called? I like that. Our Our mutual friend
1: Shivam, Uh, has told me that he burned out two PS2s playing Disgaea. Oh, I have to give him credit. He is, when he is dedicated, he is dedicated. Yes, Disgaea Um, and Final Fantasy X, those were were the games, right? And
0: here's the thing, Nadia. One of my clearest memories was going into GameStop. I always say spot, but stop. And just looking through shelves and shelves and shelves of PS2 games and bargain bins and it felt like there were so many amazing games to pick out and like Gaia, I thought really exemplified that because it was this lower budget kind of middle tier game that was nevertheless very pretty On the PS2, it had a great art style, still holds up relatively well today, and was insanely deep. And you could put hundreds of hours into it. And you just felt great for discovering this game. And the PS2 was full of those games.
1: Yeah. And one thing I actually remember very well about the Ots and Disgaea is printies were everywhere. They were like the meme of the century. (laughs) (laughs) The little penguins with the human soul sewed inside them. Another important debut was Level
0: 5, which yeah. would, of course, go on to dominate Japanese animation in many respects with games like Inazuma 11. It was it worked on the Dragon Quest series. I believe it worked on Dragon Quest 8 and 9. Correct me if I'm yes, wrong, Nadia. Yes, it was definitely. I know it was definitely 8. I'm not too sure about 9, but probably. One of their earlier breakout games was Dark Cloud 2, which was this absolutely enormous game. Uh, one of the McElroys really loved it. He did a he did a video about it on Polygon when it came out on as a PlayStation 2 classic uh, on the PS3, and uh, he was observing that it was just an enormous game, uh, a lot of randomly generated dungeons that you could go yeah, through. they're all procedurally generated. But its whole thing was, photo- you could like, there was photography and fishing and dungeon crawling and crafting, right? So if you ever got bored
1: of one thing, you just go fish. It was great. It's actually funny when I think about it, because, uh, first of all, when dark cloud came out the whole headline was is this the zelda killer and i don't think it was a zelda, no, killer, it was not a zelda killer it wasn't really a zelda game it was his own thing and when i think about it i feel like dark cloud we haven't had a new game in a very long time but level five kind of continued that whole idea with fantasy life which was very much a game about doing whatever you wanted while adventuring and taking up 10 billion jobs you want to be a chef fine you want to be a fisherman fine so they kind of continued that song with uh, with the Fantasy Life series. I think it was for the DS or the 3DS. I can't remember.
0: It wasn't the most attractive game on the PS2, but it was relatively pretty because this was the point where graphics were good enough that they could be kind of stylized.
1: Yeah, uh, that is one good thing I will say about the PS2 era is that graphics really got over a major hump with the, the over the PlayStation 1 because things were a lot less boxy. And the fun thing about the PS2 is that you got a lot of
0: weird RPGs. I, I think Sh- Shadow Hearts is the definition of the A RPG that was so prevalent on the PS2 and became yes. much less so in later generations, which is this weirdo game that's set during World War I in the real world, but is also kind of fantasy and has Anastasia for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Why is everyone obsessed with Anastasia? Uh, I don't know, I know she's because why are we why are we obsessed with the Windsors and the English royalty? Because we're that's obs- we're weirdly obsessed with royalty, especially the story of a princess who is murdered by mean old Bolsheviks.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Um, I I actually really like the Don film. I have to admit, um, but yes, I have not played Shadow Hearts, but I do understand it came up with a really unique battle system where I think it's called the Judgment Wheel, where uh, it, it works a little bit like the timed hits in Mario RPG, where you uh, Kind of hit uh, the button when the the little clock is spinning in certain spots, and if you get them, and if you do the quick time events properly, then you you can really wail on an enemy. But if you take like if you take too many chances and you miss too much, you can basically flub a whole a whole attack, and that really can screw up a boss fight. Bob really liked that game, and it had a great art style. It did have a very unique art style, and it was very dark and demonic. But if you're going to set a game, but also incredibly cheesy and weird. <laughs> yes, it was quite weird. Um, Somebody called it the, the Evil Dead
0: of uh, Japanese RPGs, which I can totally see.
1: Yeah, it, I was actually re- looking at this review that someone did, and uh, they were calling it like you know the most mature RPG on the PlayStation Two, and I'm like, maybe. it seems to take it doesn't take itself too seriously. But then Shadow Hearts Three went completely off the rails. So there you go did it like thematically
0: yeah well a lot of people say the less said about shadow hearts 3 the better the better (laughs) because it just became totally stupid by that point it takes place in a circus (laughs) everyone gets candy okay nadia it is time for the cat bailey super robot wars minute (laughs) (laughs) everybody settled down and grab some popcorn the ps2 if for my money was the best console to play a play super robot wars game on super robot wars was never better than it was on the playstation 2 yes there are the people who will claim that super robot wars alpha guide m was the best game and maybe it was there are people who are weird and will say that they can play the super nintendo games okay Mm -hmm. fine whatever Mm -hmm. but super robot wars alpha 3 was when i properly got into the series That game was insane. It had a huge number of robots, so many maps, so many characters to choose from. It's still gorgeous today. If you ever go and watch the PS2 or go watch the YouTube videos, it is one of the most beautiful games on the PlayStation 2. It has this insane uh, interconnecting story with all of these classic anime properties like the original Macross, combining with End of Evangelion, combining with Gundam Seed, (laughs) combining with Ideon. Oh my God! It does not get any bigger than Super Robot Wars Alpha Three. It is the game. Uh, Alpha Two is also excellent, and a lot of people would say that it has a better uh, that it has the better story. But at the same time, it is slower than Alpha Three. Alpha Three had a lot of nice quality of life improvements and had like every single one of the main protagonists uh, from the history of Super Robot Wars OG. Which, by the way, the OG remakes on the PS2 are also excellent, and you should check them out. The Super Robot Wars Alpha 3, famously not liked by the development team because Bandai Namco was forcing them to put in Gundam Seed, and they felt like they didn't have (laughs) enough time to do it. But that's fine, because I still really like it. Super Robot Wars Z, on the other hand, which came out in 2008, which is the last year that I was living there, that's the best Super Robot Robot Wars ever made. That is the one. It has a huge number of series. Again, uh, the best story in the series uh, it is still gorgeous today. It was an even higher level than Super Robot Wars Alpha 3 in terms of graphics. Oh, my God. It even rehabilitated Gundam Sea Destiny, which was terrible. <laughs> Gundam Sea Destiny was one of the worst anime I've ever watched. And somehow wow. Super Robot Wars Z saved it. So that's all I'm going to say about that. If you can somehow get a ROM or an import PS2 or something, find a way to play Z. Because that's the that's the game. Uh, if you wanna be hardcore. Unfortunately there's no fan translation. Okay, that ends the Super Robot Wars minute by Cat PI.
1: <laughs> Someday I gotta be allowed to kinda go off like that, but about like all the versions of Final Fantasy Four. What's so bad about Gundam Seed? G- um well it was a
0: kind of a remake of the original uh Gundam, but worse. Okay, then I <laughs> that sounds bad to me, I guess. Yeah. But the OG games were excellent as well. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's so many games to talk about, Nadia, that I almost we've been at this for 45 minutes and I we feel have. like I've been barely touching the surface. We've not even talked about the Tales games. Like, the Tales games broke out on the PlayStation 2. because Tales of the Abyss, even though it had terrible load times, a lot of people will say that and Tales of Symphonia is where the series really came into its own.
1: Yeah, um, I am definitely in a blind spot with the Tales games, so I really want to get to fixing that sometime, but yes, that was a big Big moment for the Tales series.
0: It's a shame that Tales of Rebirth never came out
1: on the uh, came
0: out in America because that game had some kick ass sprite art.
1: Yeah, one thing about the Tales games is uh, some of them had some just amazing sprite art. I love looking at them. All right, Nadia, this is the point where you can talk a little bit about Dragon Quest Eight. <laughs> well, you see, it's funny. Dragon Quest Eight. I discovered it when I went to go visit a, a really good friend of mine who's she's a pilot now. But um, I went to visit her in the wilds of Ontario. And she had Dragon Quest Eight, and I hadn't played Dragon Quest in a very long time. So I went ahead and I played it. And I was just... To me, Dragon Quest Eight exemplifies what the PS3 was... Uh, sorry, the PS2 was about in terms of that jump from PlayStation to PlayStation 2. Because I just remember the overworld, getting on the overworld and seeing, like, a mountain in the distance and, and being fascinated with the very idea of, that I could go there. I could go to that mountain and, and see what it was all about. So it was just a uh, probably my first real experience with a really open world RPG, and I loved it. My only real criticism of Dragon Quest Eight, of course, is that it has uh, random encounters, which slows things down. Dragon Quest Eight was also one of many attempts <laughs> to bring Dragon Quest and, and make it more appealing to the Western audience, because they gave us uh, a symphony soundtrack, which sounded very nice. I, I loved the, the Dragon Quest Eight overworld theme. Uh, it gave us like improved menus. It gave us voice acting. I don't think there's voice acting in the in the Japanese game, and that was also the first real taste we got of i wanna call it the Renaissance of Dragon Quest Eight localization because that's when we got the kinda very British cockney stuff that Dragon Quest for better or for worse, is known for now. I love it. I think it is as much part of the Dragon Quest identity as slimes I've kind of forgotten my old localizations that's that's how that's how much of an impact it's had on me but dragon quest 8 i guess it was the series first real jump into 3d and it made a really really good jump it was a a fantastic game it was a beautiful game one of the most beautiful games on the ps2 i think the graphics were cell shaded and it just worked so well for the the the, the series late gen ps2 games look so good they do and of course toriyama's artwork just shines as these cell shaded animated monsters I mean,
0: we're talking about how the PS2 looked a little long in the tooth. I would actually argue a lot of Xbox One games looked a lot more long in the tooth than the PS2. God of War Two was the best-looking game, one of the best-looking games of the whole generation. I mean, that's true. Sure, the I'm sure the Xbox and the GameCube both could have out, you know, stretched out further and outdone the PS2, but the PS2 was so popular. Like it is the best-selling console in history. It was it so is. well supported that developers just had a lot of impetus to wring every last piece bit of processing power out of the PS2.
1: Yes, and I think Dragon Quest Eight was major proof of that because it was like you would transition from the overworld to the ca- to like these massive caves, and you'd be holding a torch, and it was just such a nice touch. And every time you moved, you would hear the wagon following you. Even if you couldn't never see it, it was just nice to to know it was there. It was um, it was just a really really great RPG. It's still one of the best in the series. Okay, Nadia, I
0: want to talk briefly about an RPG that is kind of important to me, but also a heartbreaking moment for me. Ah, <laughs> and that is Valkyrie Profile Two, mm. which uh, was a big deal for me. So I recently went through my old live journal, which I deleted, so don't go <laughs> looking for it. <laughs> And I wrote a, and I found a very enthusiastic note about how Valkyrie Profile Two had just been announced. I was like, "Oh my god! I'm so this is so great! Valkyrie Profile's back, baby!" (laughs) It was not back. Oh, but Valkyrie Profile Two actually isn't that bad. Uh, I will just say that it's not nearly as good as the original Valkyrie Profile. Valkyrie Profile, I've said a million times, is a really interesting RPG from a structural standpoint. Weirdly enough, I've had the itch to play it again recently, and I've been thinking about plugging into my old backwards-compatible PS3 and, you know, taking it for a run. But it's also kind of a time commitment, and I kind of want to finish Dragon Quest XI, but I digress. Uh, compared to Valkyrie Profile, which had really nice sprite work, it was more of a traditional 3D game, which, okay. It didn't <laughs> have the Iron Harrier that you could recruit. I mean, you could recruit them, but mostly you would just be using... But it was weird. You didn't have the stories, so you didn't feel as connected to them. You just kind of found them in dungeons. Right, And yeah. you could add them to your team, and you're like, oh, okay, now you're on <laughs> sure. Right. It was kind of a weird story in that it was not a direct successor. Instead, it picked up a weird plot point from the original Valkyrie profile, which was that uh, Lennis' sister, Silmeria, you see her I- encased, like she's trapped. And she's the, I believe, the... Eldest sister, I want to say. She's trapped. In Sumeria, she is, for some reason, possessing this young princess who has to help Samaria. It goes through a lot of the time-traveling stuff. It also hits at another point. It's almost like Chrono Cross in, it, in that it's picking up mm. very like specific threads from the original Valkyrie profile. The difference kind of is a, that... Nobody
1: asked, but here it is.
0: Yeah, but then, unlike Chrono Cross, it actually... Ties very directly back into the original Valkyrie profile, but in a weird way that I don't particularly like.
1: Yeah, that's fair. It, one thing that was always a little bit disappointing is when something like a sequel to something you're really looking forward to was announced again. It's really special to you, and you're li- really looking forward to it, and you play it, and it's just like either it's bad or the ideas are so far off the, the off skew that they, it's just not the game you recognize, and your heart just kind of sinks.
0: I mean. It was fine, ultimately. I didn't particularly like the main character. She didn't have the fire in the belly like Leneth did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, it was beautiful for a PS2 game. And I really liked the ways that they expanded on the original battle system. I thought the battle system was way better. Because it was kind of interesting. You would be running around a little 3D arena. But then when you went to attack, it would shift back to the 2D perspective of the original Valkyrie profile. Oh, interesting. And then you could break uh, items and objects off of bosses, and that was how you did a lot of damage to them. That's pretty cool, actually. And then you could take the stuff that you collected and use that to forge new and better weapons. And as you got further and further into the game, I thought that it got better, even if the story got more and more nonsensical. That's square for that era. It totally is. I did ultimately beat it. I... Was kind of eh, and then another Valkyrie Profile game came out on the DS, but that was pretty much it. And since then, the series has kind of been dead because they just didn't seem to know where to take it. Because I guess Valkyrie Profile ended it pretty, pretty dramatically. It was like, oh, now it's over. Now, like it was very close ended. <laughs> Everyone go home. But I always thought that they could have made a game around her Wrist. Fortunately, I don't know who that is. Harist is Lenneth's other sister, but she's kind of the evil Valkyrie. Ooh, evil. Okay, yeah, you can do a story with that. In the original Valkyrie profile, where she's like, she doesn't take any prisoners, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> when Lenneth starts to go rogue in the original Valkyrie profile, it's Harist who gets sent down to Collector. Oh, cool. Yeah, so she uh, that was my screen name for a long time. It was Harist.
1: I feel like I remember you see under that name somehow. Yes. Did you use that on Talking Time? That was my name on Talking Time, yes. Okay, yes, okay.
0: I, I don't know. The PS2 felt like this period of unlimited possibility where it felt like so many games were still coming out and so many classic franchises were still being supported. Like, we've gone through this, and we've been talking for an hour. We haven't even talked about Suikoden, uh 3, 4, and 5, which was unfortunately the end of the series. It kind of
1: was, yeah. yeah. It, um, and it's a
0: total bummer and a letdown,
1: but... You know, Suikoden was still alive and well at this time. It was really like they were really throwing everything behind it back then. And did you play three? I did. I don't like it nearly as much as yeah, two. three. I had the the problem with three. The scenario is that was good, but I hate that they went to the three D engine. Yeah, the three D engine was just just did not work for me. It didn't help that I was coming off Dragon Quest Eight, which we discussed was one of the best looking games on the PS2. And, I mean, Sweet Get Into Me is partially just those gorgeous sprites. And, and we kind of got these clunky, ugly, uh, polygons instead. But I will say that opening, holy moly, is it gorgeous? I still love looking at it. It's like the, the opening anime. Uh, you can, someone actually recently upscaled it with like, uh, 4K 60 frames per second. And, uh, yeah, it's like just this three minute anime that shows off all the characters in the world. And there's basically nothing to it it's just there because why the heck not that's what konami did back in the day but
0: well the departure of the original scenario designer really curtailed scenario uh, suikin unfortunately i remember in 3 the announcement of in 3 was the first time i heard in 2 <laughs> 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 because we well, didn't that... have the same media back then so we really
1: didn't know was... i missed
0: in 2 when it came out because i was a little too distracted by final fantasy 8
1: <laughs> It came out at the same time as I recall. It got demolished by eight, which is really interesting. I think a shame. it was like the same day. Yeah, good job.
0: Yeah, like almost the same time. So unfortunate. But I would have totally bought Suicune in two if I had known about it. You know, heck,
1: I, I bought Suicune in two because I was pissed off at Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> Lucky you, right? It was a good change. Oh it was a good trade.
0: I would have played that game to, into the ground if I had managed to pick it up back then. But yeah, but by the time Suicune in three got announced, Suicune in two had already come out or Suikoden 2 was a million dollars like I could not afford it
1: yeah it was uh it went way up in price very quickly I'm still mad my copy got stolen Suikoden had the boat uh was that 4 I think that was 4 and I never got into 4 because I played the demo and I was like oh I don't like this and a friend of mine said that the main character <laughs> runs like he took a dump in his pants and I could never unsee it so I just gave up yeah there's also in Tactics which ooh. Uh, we don't talk about in Tactics yeah, a lot of people say
0: in Five was, like, pretty good, but then the series ended, and thanks, Konami. Thanks for burying an incredibly, uh, one of the greatest RPGs of all time. Very high yeah. on our top 25
1: RPGs list. Yeah, thanks for that. That was great. We appreciate that.
0: Okay, and the last thing that I want to talk about before we wrap up our discussion of the PlayStation 2, uh, and honestly, we could probably go for another hour. Just We really could.
1: Picking Sorry, guys. through
0: <laughs> all of the different... Like, we haven't talked about Rogue Galaxy or Grandia 3 or Mega Man X Command Mission or,
1: get this, Lord of the Rings of Third Age. Back when <laughs> EA was trying to make JRPGs. That was fantastic. That was basically just them taking uh, Final Fantasy X and filing off the serial numbers. Uh, yeah, the last thing I want to talk about re- really briefly is Xenosaga,
0: which was kind of an interesting experiment by, it uh, was it, not Mitsuda, um by the guy who would go on to found monolith his name is escaping me at the moment um and he was basically picking up the concepts from xenogears and telling a much greater story and this is when jrpgs were firmly up their own butt oh L- they, were,
1: they were lodged right up there
0: because the subtitles were in german yeah <laughs> they were They were talking about a five-part series that would continue all the way into the PlayStation 3. Uh, It was this insane, epic story, and I could not believe that they even pitched it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, I just cannot... Like, as someone who loves Xenoblade very much, I cannot wrap my head around Xenosaga. And I actually found a description of the game by uh, Scott Sharkey. He wrote it for 1UP. And I have it here. (laughs) and It says... I don't think anyone was really surprised or disappointed when the last game ended in a rush to fit everything in. When it was first announced that the series was going to be a six-game epic, we were all pretty much resigned to the fact that it would be ended prematurely. You can't get away with that kind of crap unless your name is George Lucas. And probably not then, either. It was Tetsuya
0: Takahashi, my my mistake. Okay,
1: yeah. But whenever devs, even today when devs make promises, oh, this is going to be an um, epic saga, like with, with the... What's it called? Shenmue. I'm like, yep, yeah, okay, we'll see about that, dude.
0: Xenosaga was very much the zenith of that PlayStation 1 uh, a thing of Japanese RPGs must be extremely large, extremely epic in scale, and completely nonsensical and impenetrable.
1: It's actually funny when... Um, basically, the, the way that RPGs, JRPGs, made themselves seem deeper and still do is when they just kind of rip off the Kabbalah, the Jewish uh, mysticism thing. Yeah. So it's hilarious when I'm, like, playing... Uh, you know RPGs are talking about them and my father who was raised Orthodox Jewish and was very learned in like the Torah and stuff like that he hears me saying these names that he recognizes but he's like doesn't get the context that they're being used in.
0: <laughs> like the like the world tree
1: like the uh, the Chayim, the Leviathan behemoth the, the Ziz, these are all like I, I think about them in, of course the Final Fantasy terms but uh, they're just totally something different in 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 mythology I think the lasting legacy of Xenosaga, a game that nobody
0: really thinks about anymore. I mean, hey, if you're a Xenosaga stan, come at me. But I don't see that game talked about much. Is Cosmos the? Cos- is it Cosmos or Cosmos? Cosmos. I,
1: I to this day I don't know. Who
0: appeared in various other Bandai Namco games?
1: Yeah, she was in Project Cross Zone along with. Uh, What's her name? Fiora from uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, who, for reasons, you will find out when you play the remake. But yes, they made a good team.
0: I'm glad that she never popped up in Smash Brothers. Oh, my God. People wanted her in Smash, didn't they? I haven't really seen her on any lists, actually. People are asking for Gino more than they are Cosmos. <laughs> I'd rather have Geno, frankly. No, I'd rather have Cosmos, actually. <laughs> Screw Gino.
1: That would be a Death weird addition.
0: No. We are no, an well, anti not- Gino podcast here. <laughs> no, we're not. I like Gino. Boo. I, I liked him. Uh, yeah, Xeno Saga was interesting because it takes a lot of gumption, I feel, to ask people to buy into a multi part uh, RPG series at like $50 a piece.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, gosh, of course, this was the day before add ons and DLC, but yeah, RPGs felt very, very epic back then. And not always deservedly so and this was when uh, companies just started like scales just started to get out of control
0: i mean this is where square started to make sequels to final fan to numbered final fantasy games like final fantasy X. 2
1: Uh, when they announced that everyone lost their shit and i don't blame them and they turned yuna and riku into charlie's
0: angels question mark That's okay. Sure, why not? Actually, I have a fair amount of love for Final Fantasy X-2 in in my own way. I like the battle system in that game. I never played X-2. I did actually. I did actually play Final Fantasy X-2, and I had a good time with it. I didn't think the story was anything of note, but I really enjoyed the structure of it. It was fun.
1: Yeah. um, I've heard a lot of good things about X-2, to be honest, more so than X. Just the fact that it's numbered the way it is, said everything about Square in that era.
0: And there was another thing. There was the Dot .hack series, which... Uh, again, put cyberconnect Connect 2 kind of on the map. And we were maybe a little old for that one because Dot Hack was very much for people who were much younger than us who were watching was, anime.
1: Yeah, it was a very, very multimedia anime heavy series. Um, I remember it was one of those series, kind of like with the Printies, where you'd see memes about Dot Hack everywhere and like everyone's avatar was related to Dot Hack. And I just, again, like Xenosaga, I could not wrap my head around it. I still can't. I try to look back on what it's about. I'm like, eh, eh. Uh this is about a, this is about a 486. I know what 486s are. I don't know what all this stuff is. <laughs> this was as we were already discussing before. This is when MMOs
0: were kind of coming into their own. Therefore, I'm a instinctively hostile towards Dot Hack.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is an anti-Dot Hack podcast now instead so of an anti-GMO. anti-MMO
0: podcast, which is I'm sure making uh, Mike Williams cry.
1: I am not anti MMO. I have played several and I do very much like 14, but that's kind of transcended MMOs as far as I'm concerned.
0: But everybody just knew Dot Hack is a fairly mediocre RPG series that
1: kept getting entries. People kept playing them, even though I would not hear, like, oh my god, this is the greatest RPG ever. People seemed to just be like, oh, Dot Hack, time to play it, and they would. All right, Nadia. I think that about
0: wraps it up for the console RPG quest for PlayStation 2. Oh my god, what a console for RPGs. It is just completely nuts. So much happened. So many new players burst onto the scene. Huge moments for Square. It was a watershed moment. RPGs would truly never be the same after the PlayStation 2, Nadia. Things would change dramatically when the PS3 and the Xbox 360 came out, and not for the better, unfortunately. We are heading into a very dark time for Japanese RPGs, but on the plus side, as we were going to discover and talking about on the Xbox, this was kind of a very interesting time for the Western side of RPGs. So not all things are bad, I don't think, but truly... It's never been as good for JRPGs as it was with the PS2. Like, we haven't had anything as good since.
1: Yeah, it was really a blossoming era. Um, there, was, there will never be anything like it quite ever again, I think.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I sold my PS2 a couple years ago, actually, because yeah. I stopped being able to plug it into my TV. I almost wish that I had bought a frame meister or something so that I could continue to own it because I felt a real pang of sadness. Even though I Aww. had no intention of ever really playing my PS2 again, there's so many games that I, I really wanted to go back to some of the games. And I even kept games like Super Robot War Z cause I just, and Alpha 3 because I just couldn't part with them. I was just like, I will play these games again one day.
1: Yeah, that's, I still have my Dragon Quest Eight, even though I know there's no reason whatsoever to play it because it's on 3ds it's on the phone it's on everything and even though the ps2 doesn't really hold up there are certain games that
0: you know i think hold up a lot better than anything on say the playstation 1 um or even the even the super nintendo to some extent i mean there were some really good looking games on that thing and that was when i mean we i I think a major point to understand the playstation 2 is that it was the dawn of modern gaming as we know it the dreamcast was the end it was the bridge to where we are now where the dreamcast was the last console that really had that arcade roots right yeah. where the playstation 2 was truly the beginning of the blockbuster game development that we know today
1: yeah like the dreamcast didn't have much in the way of 100 hour epics but playstation 2 had like hundreds of them i mean all you need to know about the
0: difference between the ps2 and say the ps1 is that the ps1 launched with ridge racer and the PlayStation 2, the way it debuted was with Metal Gear Solid 2 uh, and Snake being in the rain and and going on to Big Shell and all of that stuff. And everybody being utterly blown away by the cinematic qualities of the PlayStation 2, right? And yeah. that yeah. would define so much of the PS2 library.
1: Very, It was a very sort of cinematic era where as you said, developers were making things really, really huge. They wanted to kind of prove themselves and put themselves up against uh, movie directors.
0: Yeah, and it's never really stopped since then. Uh, No, it hasn't. Games like Last of Us 2 are direct outgrowth of that. All right, that's our PlayStation 2 console RPG quest. The quest continues. Do you have any great memories of the PlayStation 2? Send in your emails to cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a DM on twitter i would love to hear your thoughts i think i'm gonna save all of them for a mailbag that we can yeah. do next week because we were supposed to do the mailbag this week and then do something else next week but we kind of front-loaded stuff so maybe we'll do the sw- swap it around and do the mailbag. yeah next
1: week. so if you want to yell at me for neglecting to mention dragon eight uh, sorry uh, uh breath of fire five by all means save it for a letter and we can talk about it then.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Dragon Quarter in a letter that somebody is going to write. And yeah, if you want us to stand for Dragon Quarter, do that. I mean, I mean, it just goes to show that we we talked for more than an hour, we talked about a lot of <laughs> RPGs have. and we didn't even hit nearly all of them. We never talked no. about Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance for gosh sake. Uh, we never talked about uh, I, I, again, Star Ocean till the end of time. I mean. We barely touched on Tails. It's it's ridiculous. What a ridiculous console. All right, I'm pretty exhausted, Nadia. I don't (laughs) think we're going to read the comments from last week, even though we had a lot of them after our discussion of the tropes that we love and hate in RPGs and the weirdness of people defending sewer levels. What is wrong with you? Maybe we can save them for the mail episode if we remember. Yes, let's do that. But in the meantime, Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to follow us on our social media accounts and on Twitter at the underscore cap at Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Just make sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can find the subscription info on the website on our front page and you will get an email every week with all of the RPG news plus an interesting little essay from Nadia or myself if Nadia is out in the meantime wow this is the longest uh Exo blood god yet i think uh it's up
1: there we might have gone two hours at one point but no this is close oh man did we ever go two hours i, I mean i believe that we could i feel like we might have gone two hours for the episode where we were live
0: was that the episode 200 200 yes yeah like I, yeah i think that actually did probably go two hours because we were talking about all of the rpg bests and we were also yeah. wrapping up the uh the top 25 rpg list too right
1: we were it was quite
0: an involved episode but it was a fun one all right thanks to everybody for listening we'll be back next week but until then for nani myself happy adventuring